Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Vance Havner. He was born in 1901 in Jugtown, North Carolina. Through his ministries, Dr. Havner maintained a love for the quiet and simple ways of his more rural past. Eventually, Protestant leaders from many denominations would call Havner the Dean of America's Revival Preachers. He was truly gifted with the ability to phrase a thought in such a way as to drive home a point with absolute effectiveness. Today's message is taken from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. take just a moment to say how glad I am that I was able to revisit this good place. It's been five years since the last visit and the 50th wedding anniversary of Dr. and Ms. Palmer, and uh, I'm glad he's still around. He's a little older than I am, I won't say how much. But I'm looking for him to be here when it comes the next time. Right. I heard about one old fellow, 90 years old, started off on a trip around the world, and his old friend came out to the airport and said, I'm afraid I'll never see you again. No, the old 90-year-old said, you'll probably be dead when I get back. But uh, I'm not looking for that in his case. Our Dr. R.G. Lee is 86 and still going strong. He cheers me up when I see him, and I do once in a while. He was down in Huntsville, Alabama some time ago and preached his great sermon on payday someday. And, you know, he always gets after Jezebel in that sermon. And he conked out right in the sermon, though, and they revived him when he came to. Instead of saying he wanted to go back to his room to bed, he said, No, I want to finish this sermon. I want one more crack at Jezebel. <laughs> That's a good way to live, I think. One reason I keep coming here, in all honesty and sincerity, and I don't have any cute little speeches that I make everywhere I go about the local situation, Sometimes the less said about the local situation, the better. But I come back because I like this place and because I have confidence in it. It has proven itself a long time ago. As everybody knows, it's had ample opportunity to prove itself, and it has. And I thank God for those who have led it and those who still lead it, those who come to it. I wouldn't come if I didn't have absolute confidence that God works here and that he has done a mighty work through these years. Still continues so to do. Now I read a familiar portion out of Revelation, the message to Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 14. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things set the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not 
that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now the next verse has a phrase repeated three times, and as long as I've read this, it wasn't until about a year ago that it jumped out and grabbed me when I read it one more time. We have here what Christ wants for his church, and the phrase is, that thou mayest. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see, that thou mayest be rich, that thou mayest be clothed, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. Laodicea was neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. It might shock some comfortable Sunday morning Christians to be told that our Lord prefers a cold church to a warm church. But he does have. I can understand why he would say, I would that you were hot. But he also said, I'd prefer that you'd be cold. It's a lukewarm. Isn't a warm church better than a cold church? No. Our Lord wants us to boil. That's what zealous means. I remember some 35 or 40 years ago, up New York State, somewhere in meetings. I'd been persecuting the saints pretty heavily, and the dear brother who took me to my room each night thought he ought to say a good word for the place. And he said, well, we're not so good here, but we're not so bad. We try to behave ourselves, pay our debts, stay out of the penitentiary, do the best we can. We're not so good, but we're not so bad. I said, did you ever stop to think that's the kind of people the Lord said made him sick? And that's what we have here. Laodicea did not know its true condition. Thou sayest and knowest not. We're rich. We don't need anything. Everything's in great shape. We don't need revival. And really, my Lord says, you're wretched, which means burdened, and not with debt, but with wealth. You don't know that you're miserable, which means pitiable, and pity was the last thing that crowd wanted. But they needed it. And you don't know that you're poor, living in unconscious bankruptcy. You don't know that you're blind, short-sighted, no vision of God or of your own need or of the world outside. You don't know that you're naked, you're the best-dressed congregation in all proconsular Asia, but stripped of everything, naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Laodicea was a wealthy city, it was a banking center, it was a clothing market that specialized in glossy, dark wool woven into the finest of garments. It had a medical school known far and wide for its famous eye salve, the Tephra Phrygia, and uh, yet our Lord analyzed their need and spoke of exactly those three things, wealth, clothing, and eye salve. And so in verse 18 we find the Recurring phrase, that thou mayest. 
Be rich, be clothed, that thou mayest see. First, we need to be rich. The church needs to be rich, not get rich. The church hasn't got any business getting rich. Be rich. We already are if we knew it. And he offers gold tried in the fire for all our buildings and equipment and trained personnel and activity. The biggest problem in the church today in this prosperous America is poverty. When it comes to gold tried in the fire, we're a bunch of paupers. The church doesn't have any Fort Knox of gold reserves these days. You remember that they said, I am rich, and he said, that thou mayest be rich. Now Smyrna, you recall, was rich when it was poor, and Laodicea was poor when it was rich. Smyrna was a rich, poor church, and Laodicea was a poor, rich church. I've been in both in my time. Well, uh, what is this uh, wealth that we need so much? Personal Christian experience proven in the fires of testing and discipline and suffering and persecution. So much cheap Christianity today, wood, hay, and stubble, instead of gold, silver, and precious stones. The time's coming when the day will declare And a lot of our so-called Christian living will go up in smoke. You remember how Solomon, when he had finished the temple, hung golden shields all the way around. I mean the real thing, not gold-plated. Golden shields. That must have been something to see. And then old Shishak came along and took the place, and the first thing he saw, of course, his eyes would light on golden shields, and away he went with them. And King Rehoboam, to hide his embarrassment, did not hang up silver shields, because in Solomon's day they wouldn't even look at silver. It says so in the book. wasn't even thought of in the days of Solomon. And now they've dropped all the way from gold to brass. Brass is a lot cheaper. It'll shine, but it's not gold. So Rehoboam hung up brazen shields, and I wander from church to church today that spends most of its time scrubbing brass to try to make it look like gold. And God knows the difference, and even the sinners know the difference on the outside. And God knows it. Everybody knows it but us. Here we go. And I'm sure that the Jerusalemites must have said when the company came in from the country to spend the weekend, I'm sure as they showed them around in the days of Solomon, they must have said, you never saw anything like that, did you? That's the real thing. And then after Shishak came, I imagine they said, well, we've had better days. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed in a lot of churches today when I listen to their dry, dead, dull, dismal little services. And so many uprisings and so many down-sittings and God isn't in a thousand miles of the place as far as any effective presence is concerned. I feel like saying, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Got a lot of brass gleaming around here, but it's not gold. God is running a refinery today. God wants to put us on the gold standard, all of us. Making saints out of sinners, that's what God's doing. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Some of you have been through the fire. 
God had to burn out some dross and refine you. We talk about so-and-so is not refined, and we usually mean cultured and all that sort of thing. I wonder if you're refined, if you've been through the fire. I've been through a lot of fire in the last year. I've been through the most fire I ever have in the 70, almost 73 years. I've wept more than in the last year than I ever had in the others. I've been more heartbroken than I ever have in all the others. And I trust that out of it, a lot of dross has gone and a lot of the real thing has taken the place of it. Church needs to be rich. God said, you are the light of the world. He didn't say, now become the light of the world. You are. You are the soul to the earth. Just be what you are. How much treasure do we have laid up in heaven beyond moth and rust and thieves? Now, this wealth's free, but, brother, it's not cheap. It costs God his son, and it costs the son his life. It's not cheap. Salvation's free, but it's not cheap. Don't ever preach it like it is cheap. We've got a lot of cheap gospel going around today. Our Lord's not running a bargain counter. We've got a lot of church hobos and religious tramps going to heaven as cheaply as possible. Just enough prayer to get by with, just enough Bible, just enough discipline, just enough fellowship to get by with. Jesus told us about that soil that represents those who uh, hear the word of God and anon with joy receive it. Now, I used to think that would be enough for anybody. If he comes down the aisle with a smile on his face and says, I'll take it. No, Jesus says they don't have any root and they don't have any depth. And we've pretty nearly filled our churches with a cheap crowd like that today. And the first puff of wind of persecution that blows, bowls them over. <clears throat> now, salvation's free, but it costs to be a mature Christian. The other side of that coin is discipleship. The grace of God gives us a free salvation, but the minute you become a Christian, you become a disciple, and that'll cost you everything you've got. So let's not get too much of a bargain notion in this thing of getting people saved. They ought to know what they're doing when they get saved, that they're becoming disciples. <clears throat> Jesus said, come and I'll give you rest, and the very next thing he said was, learn of me and you'll find rest. Well, I thought he was going to give it to us. He is. We get it when we get him. It's all in him, but you have to go to his school to learn it. You go to school, they don't hand you out a diploma with a little pink ribbon around it at the start of the thing. They say after four years, maybe. We'll give you the real article. You know, that is the token of it. You may not know much then, but at least you'll still have the sign of it at least. Matriculation, brothers, not graduation. And our Lord didn't just say come and get wealth and come and get clothing and come and get I said, he said, buy it. I'm not just giving it away in the sense that it doesn't cost you anything. It's an obtainment and it's an attainment. I'll give it and you'll learn it. Well, what is this gold tried in the fire? Well, our Lord himself, who for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. That gold was tried in the fires of Calvary. And it means that all we have in Jesus Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that's our wealth. I heard of a man who eked out an existence for years on a poor little patch of ground. And after he died, his son took over and found oil underneath and became a millionaire. 
Now, it was there all the time. The first man didn't know it. And the second man could have known it and just sat there and said, well, we've got oil underneath, but he went after it. And so must we, beloved. We live like paupers when we ought to live like princes. And then this is our faith, which Peter says is more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be gold tried with the fire. It has stood the test of dungeon, fire, and sword, and persecution for the centuries, and the assaults of the devil. It's becoming very fashionable these days to re-examine our faith and revalue our doctrines. I get so tired of it. Uh, we're making a fresh study of Genesis and the inspiration of the scriptures and the resurrection and just about everything, trying to prove at this late date what our fathers never doubted to begin with. We've let the world, the flesh, and the devil trick us into rethinking what doesn't need rethinking. It needs reliving. And if you keep that up long enough, always re-examining our faith, somebody's going to get the idea we're not sure about it ourselves. It's very poor psychology, if nothing else. I don't have to re-examine it. As far as I'm concerned, it's been through the fire, tried and tested. I'm no symposium of PhDs pooling their ignorance to establish what's been established and vindicate what's already been vindicated. I don't need that. In fact, no conference of theological metallurgists is necessary these days to pass on gold tried in the fire for 20 centuries. I heard of an engineer out in the West who constructed a great dam and the water gathered back of it. And One day somebody got out the rumor that the dam was about to break. He had built a home down below it. And these excited valley dwellers ran everywhere, arousing people to flee for their lives. And some of them ran to the house of the engineer, resting in his front yard, and said, The dam is about to break. Run for your life. He said, What dam? They said, the one you build. He said, I know what's in that dam. I'm not running. And I meet a lot of folks today running all directions, saying that God's dead. They said that, you know, a little while ago, and they say the old-time religion's about to break. <laughs> Friend, you can run if you want to. I'm staying with it. It's not going to break till the Ten Commandments break. It's not going to break till Calvary breaks. It's not going to break till the resurrection breaks. It's not going to break till John 3 breaks at the 16th verse. I'm staying with it. You want to get nervous? Well, I can't help it. I'm not running. I know what's in that dam. It's the rock of ages. It won't break. And then Laodicea had another problem. They needed clothing. The shame of spiritual nakedness. We're living in a pagan world, the accents on nakedness today. The human body is being glorified or debased, and nudity is increasingly popular in an age of moral putridity. Ever since Adam and Eve wore fig leaves, man has tried to cover his sin in shame, but God accepts only the robes of Christ's righteousness and no matter how you disguise yourself, you will be shown up like the guest at the wedding supper who was not garbed in the proper garment. And the original says he stood, King James says speechless, but he stood muzzled. And so shall we one day. 
If we're not clad in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We need to check our wardrobe. We Christians need to check our wardrobe. Some are wearing the rags of self-righteousness. Some are wearing the spotted garments of worldliness. And some are wearing the gray garb of compromise. One of the three, check your wardrobe. God's word has a lot to say about our dress, both here and hereafter. The Savior complimented Sardis because they'd not defile their garments. When I look at the garb of a great many church people today, I'm aware of the need of that verse, <laughs> that thou mayest be clothed. I'm always glad when fall comes and the saints get back in their clothes, if not in their right minds. White stands for cleanliness, and it's next to godliness yet, I think. When the prodigal son came home, he was a sight to see, and his father took him just like he was in his arms, but the next thing that boy had to do was clean up. Robe, slippers, and ring. There is no encouragement in the Bible for sloppy, disheveled Christians who look like baboons and denizens on skid road. The people of Vanity Fair wondered at the apparel of the Christians. Have you... Uh, do you remember that from John Bunyan? Both their behavior and their apparel. Well, I don't think the world could see much difference today if it looked at the saints. You say, well, clothes are incidental. I know the Pharisees boasted of their phylacteries and all that, but in the craze to be like everybody else, the new trend may be symptomatic of a corresponding charge change in spiritual wardrobes. Now you say, well, what's important is not the symptoms, but the disease. These things you're fussing about are just symptoms. Don't you tell a doctor that symptoms don't matter. He can't tell what's the matter with you sometimes until he finds out what the symptoms are. You've got to know something about the externals to know something about the internals. The symptoms indicate the disease. You say, well, it's not how you look, it's your heart. Yes, but the world can't see your heart. It sees how you look. I didn't expect many amens from that part of the sermon. <laughs> if we're to walk with the Lord in white hereafter, we ought to get in a little practice now. I believe that God saved us not to make us happy. He saved us to make us holy. We're getting away from that. You can get out of crowd if you'll tell all of them how to be happy. And these new rules for health, happiness, and success, ten easy lessons or money refunded. Yeah. Follow these rules and you'll be president of the company before you're 40 years of age. All that sort of business. I don't find any of that in the Bible. I, I, don't, I don't get this idea that God wants everybody to be a millionaire today. That's not the way my New Testament reads. Now, something good may happen to you today, but something bad may happen to you too. You better be ready for both barrels of the gun. And the New Testament saints had it pretty rough. Old Paul sitting in jail waiting to have his head chopped off is not much of a symbol of success by earthly standards. And Latimer being roasted at the stake is not 
the cup of tea of these gentlemen, these Christians today who say, God wants everybody rich and prosperous. Now, that was the blessing of the Old Testament, but somebody said adversity is the blessing of the New. We used to sing, I saw a way-worn pilgrim in tattered garments clad. Now you've got the Madison Avenue modern Christian at home in this world can partake of the Lord's table on Sunday and cocktails on Monday at the country club on good terms with Balaam and Jezebel out to improve the far country with social action, building better hog pens out there instead of getting the prodigal son home. You know, if they'd had a social gospel back in the days of the prodigal son, somebody would have given him a bowl of soup and a sandwich and he never would have gotten home. For all their fancy get-up, my Lord is saying to the church today, I wish you'd get some clothes on, more ways than one. And finally, that thou mayest see, because you're short-sighted. We see men as trees walking. We cannot discern the times. We don't know what time it is. We are beset by a world of darkness, and the spiritual air is loaded with pollution. And we've got a stigmatism. You say the world needs more light. No, it doesn't. All the light in the world won't do a blind man any good. What this world needs is sight. We've got more light. We've got more knowledge than we've ever had. We can split the atom and go to the moon, but this is the blindest crowd that's come along yet. We need to have our eyes open like old Elisha prayed for his servant at Dothan. The natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. They are moronic to him, the original says. That's where you get the word moron. This old world says your talk about the gospel, that's moron talk. Because they're spiritually discerned. You might as well try to play music for a deaf man or paint a sunset for a blind man or discuss nuclear physics with a wooden Indian in front of a cigar store as to talk about the things of God to a man never has been born again. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He doesn't need more light. He may be a Ph.D., phenomenal dud, or whatever. But he never will take it in till he gets his eyes open. And then he'll behold wondrous things out of God's law. We never had as many unstable people and double-minded people, and you know that's out of the book of James and... Uh, how come we have so many people double-minded and unstable? Well, the first part of that chapter tells you. They don't have wisdom. And Dr. Campbell Morgan says that the eye salve here is the same thing as wisdom. We need eyesight. We need wisdom. If you want knowledge, go to school. But you don't get wisdom at school. If you want wisdom, get on your knees. If any of you lack wisdom, let him go to school. No, no, no. Let him ask of God, who giveth, liber giveth liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven at the wind and tossed. Let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord, for a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's why we're so unstable. We've got a lot of knowledge. Haven't got much wisdom today, and we don't have wisdom because we don't pray right. With three reasons, we don't get our prayers answered, and James gives you all three of them. James 4, 2, we don't ask we, uh, to begin with, many of us. 
And uh, we ask amiss, chapter 4, verse 3, and we don't ask in faith, chapter 1, verse 6. So, what does Jesus want for his church? And that's us now. Don't pass the book. You know, when you say us, why we sort of get collective and forget that it means you. Now, what does the Lord want for you? That you may be rich. Thank God you are in Jesus Christ. You have nothing and you possess all things. All things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You need to be clothed in his righteousness alone. Properly clad. Not the rags of self-righteousness. Not the spotted garments of worldliness. Not the gray garb of compromise. And then he wants you to see, to get your eyes open. Well, he called on Laodicea to repent, but they didn't repent, and he did spew them out of his mouth and all the others of those churches. And he's doing it today. If they don't repent, we're not repenting. I don't see much repentance today. There's a lot of religious excitement, but I don't see much repentance. But he's got one more proposition. If the church won't repent, you don't have to be like that because the church is or because Christendom is. If anyone, it says, not really any man, but if anybody, anyone, will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and be his guest and I want to be his host. We'll have fellowship. Campbell Morgan says he excommunicated the whole church and started over with one man. And I think that's what he's doing today in a lot of our churches. He wants to start with a little handful all over again. I doubt whether we're going to see revival in terms of great statistics. Revival doesn't come that way. I used to think it meant you got to get all the backsliders in, the folks that just come Christmas and Easter. No, no. It starts with the best people in the church, the folks who go to morning cheer, all other places. And so I'm not shedding too many tears right now for all the backsliders that only go Christmas and Easter. What bothers me is the crowd that's there about all the time. And yet, that's where the Lord starts, with kindling wood. He doesn't start with the backlog. He starts with kindling wood. Go back to your church, and may the Lord help you to be his kindling wood and get a few more splinters around you and start something. If you wait till that old backlog of undedicated saints get right, you never will have a fire. Start with the kindling wood. That's where Jesus wanted to start here. There's a stranger at the door. Let him in. I know that's the way we sing it sometimes, but this doesn't mean Jesus trying to get into a sinner's heart. Not in this instance. But there's another old song. Oh, Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast-closed door in lowly patience waiting to cross the threshold door. Shame on us, Christian brothers, his name and sign who bear. Oh, shame, thrice shame on us, to keep him standing there. That's where the trouble lies. We're keeping him standing there. Lord Jesus, make us aware this day, as we need to be, that thou art here, thou art right in this meeting, thou art among us, looking us over. Thou art saying three things I want for my people and for my church that they may be rich, that they may be clothed, and that they may see. 
granted in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers. 